Here we go, week number three of the seven deadly sins. This weekend's topic is greed. Uh, several months ago, my wife and I were in Peoria. My son was singing in some choir competitions down there, and so we were killing time between performances, and my wife and I found ourselves in a mall, and in that mall, we found ourselves in a game store, not like a Toys R Us type game store, uh, but a game store that had all kinds of obscure board games. I'm not talking like Monopoly and Life. I'm talking weird board games. So I stumbled upon this, The Seven Deadly Sins, the board game. (laughs) This is not a prop that I created. This actually exists. If you're wondering how to play Seven Deadly Sins, the board game, let me just read off the back of the box. To start the game... Everyone must first go to hell on the game board. (laughs) You and the other players then tunnel your way up to the Earth's surface. As you move around the board, you answer trivia questions associated with the seven deadly sins. And when you land on a token square, you select a sin card and perform the appropriate sin if you are willing to do what it takes to earn the token. Earn all seven sin tokens and act out one final sin to win the game. I read the cards in this box. This game is very warped. In fact, when I'm done preaching this weekend, this will go immediately in the trash. Uh, But beyond the fact that that game is warped, I'll tell you what is most warped about it. The notion that you earn your way out of hell. The whole point of this game is to earn your way out of hell. Now, the whole game is backwards, but... We we tend to fall into this trap, and I think it's important as we continue on in this series on the seven deadly sins that we continually reframe the discussion to make sure that we are understanding what this conversation is all about. In no way, shape, or form do we mean to suggest by going through these seven deadly sins that if we will clean our lives up enough, if we will become good enough as people, that God will then have to love us and accept us, thus earning our way out of hell and earning our way into heaven. That is not this conversation. That would be a perversion of what we find in in the Bible. What the Bible instructs us towards is the reality that sin has broken and corrupted this world that God has created, including you and me. And God so loved us that he sent Jesus to meet us at the point of our need, to address our basic human problem at its root cause, which is sin. Jesus came, died on a cross, rose back to life, ascended to heaven, and one day will come again in order that the power of sin in our lives may be broken, that we may be forgiven and free, and that we can become the people that God created us to be both now and we can spend all eternity with him. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we cannot earn our way out of hell, earn our way to heaven. It is a gift offered to us because God is loving and generous and merciful. So this conversation about the seven deadly sins is our effort to the best we know how, cooperate with God's work in our lives. Once we respond to what Jesus has done on the cross for us, recognizing Jesus for who he is, repenting of our sin, recognizing we have a sin problem, and understanding that the only way to break free from it is through the provision of the cross, once that happens, then we live out our lives, doing our best to cooperate with God's work in our lives in the process of sanctification, becoming less like the corrupted versions of ourselves because sin has so demented everything about our lives, and we we cooperate with God to become more like the people he's created us to be. 
That's what this conversation is, and this weekend's topic happens to be greed. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 12. This is a parable that Jesus taught on the topic. So starting in verse 13, grab your Bibles, grab your notes, grab a pen. Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So Jesus finds himself... In another situation where there's crowds, which was pretty common for Jesus as his ministry went more and more public, and someone in the crowd asks Jesus a question, and this question rolls into point number one in your outline, which is the fact that greed makes a promise to you and to me, and that promise is unbelievable life. Greed promises the good life. Let's take a look at this. Verse 13, someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replies, Who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Now, here's the reality. It would not have been uncommon in those days, not atypical at all, for people to ask a rabbi or a religious teacher to settle a dispute between two people. So this person is not asking Jesus anything that would be uncommon or abnormal. But Jesus refuses to function on that surface level of simply adjudicating the matter between two people. Jesus immediately wants to go to the root cause. Jesus immediately wants to go deeper. What is the underlying motivation? What is really going on here? That is what we are trying to do with this entire Seven Deadly Sin series. We're trying to go a little bit deeper to offer a little bit more reflection on what is really going on in our lives. What are really the motivations behind what we do? And the seven deadly sins, the list created several hundred years ago, is that. It's a diagnostic tool for, to help us get to the deeper level of what is really going on in our lives. And so Jesus is doing that here. And he says, watch out. Be on your guard Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Be careful. Be on your guard. If you have to be careful and you have to be on your guard, chances are there's something sneaky that is lurking. So be careful. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now this word life, you can use life as just merely talking about physical life. Like I have air coming out of my lungs and blood pumping through my veins, physical life. But then you can talk about life, like life, like having life, having abundant life, having real life. That's what this is talking about. That real life, that unbelievable life, abundant life, free life, joyful life, quality of life, that kind of life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. The Gospel of John 
verse chapter 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is Jesus talking. Then rolling forward in the Gospel of John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, life now, life for all eternity. Jesus came to bring us life, and he's cautioning here that that kind of life that we all so desperately want is not found in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is saying, be careful, because greed makes you a promise, greed makes me a promise, that it cannot deliver on. Greed will say to you and me, I will bring you life. I will bring you the good life. And Jesus is saying, be careful because it's promising something that it cannot deliver. Just like lust, which we talked about in week one of this series, lust promising something that it never ever delivers. And week two, gluttony, gluttony promising something that it never ever delivers. So it goes with greed. Greed makes us a promise. Life, I will bring you life, but it never fully does it. This conversation of the seven deadly sins, if you remember, is a conversation about vices and virtues, words that we don't normally use in our culture. Uh, Just to refresh our memory on this as we continue in these conversations, the definition of a vice is this. Vices are character traits developed over a period of time through repetitive choices. So at a certain point, you make a sinful choice, and then you make it again, and you make it again, and you make it again, and the more you make that choice, the easier it becomes. It slowly becomes a part of your character, then it slowly becomes your default mode of operation, and then the vice has you. It becomes a part of who you are, and it takes you to a place you don't want to go. Pithy little statement, people often talking about vices and sin is this. Sin will take you further than you want to go and make you stay longer than you want to stay. These are vices in our lives, actually stealing life from us that it's promising. And one of the the really sneaky things about greed is not only is it making promises that it cannot deliver on, but it also slowly, as it takes you down the road creates in us a misguided allegiance to it. Job talks about it this way. If I've put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I've regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Sneaky stuff where we start to look to material possessions, look to money to provide things that only God can ultimately provide in our lives. Another way of thinking about this is found in Ecclesiastes. We're going to touch on this briefly and then later on in the message come back to Ecclesiastes and look at it more in depth. This is Solomon, who was trying to figure out the meaning of life. So he tried it from every angle he knew, and this is part of his contemplation. 
I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun." That's not just Solomon's story. Celebrity after celebrity, professional athlete after professional athlete will say, you know, I thought that when I climbed the mountain and got to a certain place financially, that that would be life and life to the full. And almost all of them to the number will say, it simply did not deliver what it promised on. This is the alluring deception of greed. It makes the promise for unbelievable life, but it cannot deliver. And what is worse is not only is greed a liar promising something that it cannot deliver, but it actually wants to set itself up on the throne of our lives. In Colossians chapter 3, it, ver- it says it very plainly. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. Greed ends up sitting on the throne. And it's sneaky because it has a playbook that is sneaky. So now we're rolling right into point two in your outline, greed's playbook, which is this. Unchecked accumulation. Unchecked accumulation is greed's playbook. Verses 16 through 19 in this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I want to point out something that I hope was obvious as I read through that, but I'm going to go back and read it again with the obvious highlighted for you. Let's look at it. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry." I, 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 me, my, I, I, more, more, more. And you know, the biggest problem with that mode of operation isn't that we're only thinking about ourselves. The bigger problem is that while we're so consumed with thinking about ourselves, what are we not thinking about? Others. When, we, when greed starts to take root in our lives, and accumulation goes unchecked, what happens is we become so self-consumed with me and mine and ours that we become completely oblivious to the needs all around us, thus making us quite selfish, 
quite unmerciful, quite uncompassionate, all about us. Now, this is, this is the question that we have to ask here because this guy in this parable has a bumper crop and he builds bigger barns, right? To just collect, to accumulate more of his stuff. And so it begs the question, which I'm not even going to stand in front of you and say, I, I know the answer to this question, but I think it's a question worth asking to check greed in our own lives, and it's this. How much is enough? How much is enough? Like, when will it be enough? At, at what point, at what point is enough enough? Uh, we, we start digging in here at the insatiable nature of more. I want more and more and more. When, when does what we have, our money and our possessions, move from the enjoyment of God's abundant provision in our lives and taking care of my family, when do I move from that to crossing the line into greed? I don't know where the line is. This parable is giving us some clues about the deceptive nature of greed and what it creates in our character, which is a selfishness and, an obl- and being oblivious to the needs that are all around us. But I don't know exactly where that line is. What I want to suggest this weekend from this parable is that greed is unchecked accumulation, which means you and I have to start checking it. You and I have to start asking the tough questions. And it is sneaky stuff. You know, this isn't just like, you can't just put greed in the category of those involved in like massive dishonesty, you know, corporate, corporate misdoings and, you know, people that are bilking other people out of millions of dollars. This is real life, everyday stuff. You and I are more like the man pictured in this parable than we ever want to admit. On Thursday morning, at about 7.30 in the morning, I ran around my house with my iPad and I took a bunch of pictures to illustrate this point. So let's take a look. This is my two-year-old daughter watching cartoons in the morning. There's my family room. You know what I see when I see my family room? I see the fact that I would love to redo that entire fireplace. I would love to update it, modernize it. I would love it to look completely different than it does. It will cost me several hundred dollars to do it. But when I see the picture of my family room, I would love to redo the fireplace. Another picture I took that morning. This is my front yard. And when I look at that picture, I see those two big bushes under the tree that I would love to remove. And I have an idea of the kind of landscaping I want to put under that tree. It'll cost me about at $125 to buy the kinds of plants that I would like to have under that tree. Here's another picture I took that morning. This is my backyard. Uh, that landscaping island light right there, I would love to rip that all out, put in a really nice fire pit, and have tree stump benches built in there so that my family can go out there and enjoy the fire pit. Uh, next picture I took that morning, this is shooting into the sun, sorry for the bad picture, but that's my patio furniture up there. Had it for about six years. Uh, it's starting to rust a little bit, and the table is a glass top table, which is a pain in the neck to take care of outside, and so I would love to have a brand new patio set up there. Next picture I took, this is my wife's computer, who it's all slow and junked up because of my kids' Minecraft stuff and all the other garbage that they download onto it, and so I'd love to get my wife a faster laptop with a larger screen. Uh, Next picture I took here, this is one of my four television sets in my house, and I would love to replace this one. You know why? Because they're coming out with all these smart TVs now that are just online, which would be so convenient for the way we use that room. So I would love to just get rid of this TV and buy a smart TV. Uh, The next one is, uh, this is my phone, which I've had for a few years, and uh, it's just getting slow. You know, I used to push stuff, and it would immediately happen, and now I have to wait like three seconds 
Or, you know, this in our, parked in our garage, this is, my, this is my wife's 2007 Honda Odyssey. Have you seen the features on the new Odysseys? Oh, my goodness. And so it goes. And 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 when it goes unchecked, greed takes root. And the next thing you know, while we're keeping up with the Joneses, and we are buying everything that the commercials are selling us because they listen. The people that are selling this stuff to us know about greed. They know we're greedy. And you know what they do? They keep improving their products just a little bit so that you want the next bigger and better thing. And we buy it hook, line, and sinker. And so the story goes. And greed takes root. And we become self preoccupied completely oblivious to the fact that there are needs all around us. We become more like the guy in this parable than we ever want to think we are. We read this parable and we think this guy is completely ridiculous, and on some level, all of us are like that. Now, I know we don't have, most of us aren't farmers, some of us are, so we're not talking wheat and barns, right? We're talking that kind of stuff. We're talking suburbs stuff. And this guy says... I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That is, I guess the modern day equivalent of that is YOLO. If you don't know what that is, just ask someone much younger than you. They will fill you in. It's this idea that I just want to squeeze out of life everything that I possibly can. I just want to get out of life everything that I can possibly get out of life. And I would say that's not a bad thing. That's not, even, that's not a bad desire to want to get everything out of life, recognizing that God gave us life and he's a good God and life is a good thing. It's just that when we, when we think that greed is what's going to help us do it, it's a lie. Greed promises something it can't deliver. It sets us on a course of action towards unchecked accumulation. And what happens is that the preoccupation with self ends up being a neglect of other people and direct disobedience to God's repeated commands for us to love and care for each other, to be compassionate and generous, meeting the needs of other people. Greed not only wants to set itself up as the king of our lives, it's not only a liar promising something it can't deliver, but it actually makes you and I disobedient to the very heartbeat of God. Greed is not something to be messed with, which leads us to number three in your outline, which is greed's problem. Greed's big problem is that it, it generates in us unmerciful short-sightedness. Unmerciful short-sightedness. Look at verses 20 and 21 in this parable. God said to him, You fool. This night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. You fool. There is uh, a conversation about that word fool, uh, mostly found in the Old Testament wisdom literature, primarily Proverbs, some in Psalms. Uh, a good working definition of the word fool is somebody who lives without regard for God or consequences. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm not going to think about God, the fact that God made me, God's 
God's expectations on my life. I'm not going to think about consequences. I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want to do. And the scriptural definition of that approach to life would be foolish. In Psalms 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Jesus is taking those thoughts and applying it to this man in this parable. You fool. You're living your life without any regard for God. You're living your life without any regard for consequences. Not only that, but another place in Proverbs says it this way. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. That phrase, ill-gotten gain there, is actually greed. Greed can manifest itself in an honest pursuit of stuff where you just spend your whole life in honest work, hard work for the accumulation of money and stuff. Greed also manifests itself in dishonest ways. Stealing and cheating and lying to just get more from other people. So it can be an honest pursuit or a dishonest pursuit. But take a note, whichever way you pursue greed, here's what it delivers. Go back one, there you go, yeah. It takes away the life of those who get it. Notice, not only does greed not deliver on its promise, it actually ends up stealing from you the very thing it promised it would deliver. Greed is nasty stuff. And then there is a somewhat rhetorical question asked at the end of this parable in verse 20. Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So let's say you spend your whole life Believing the promise of greed, that it will somehow provide for you life. And you accumulate, 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 and you die. Who gets it? And what are they going to do with it? Now we're back to Ecclesiastes and Solomon's contemplation of these topics. Uh, This this is is interesting stuff. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2... Solomon is, is, is contemplating that exact same question that Jesus is asking at the end of this parable. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun, and I want you to pay attention to how many times under the sun appears here, and it appears all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually the key to unlocking what in the world Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes. All the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Under the sun, meaningless, under the sun, meaningless, under the sun, a chasing after the wind, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. It's repeated over and over in Ecclesiastes. What do you think Solomon wants you to think about? Perhaps what Solomon has concluded is all of this is meaningless unless you go above the sun. 
if you reduce life only to your mere mortal life, without any recognition of God, of eternity, of God's purpose for your life, if you only contemplate all of this stuff under the sun, it will result in despair and meaninglessness. What, what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to recognize is, yes, just contemplating all of this under the sun is meaningless, does bring despair, but once you can climb your mind in your heart above that sun to the creator of life, then all of a sudden hope and meaning and purpose begin to take root above the sun. This is the same thing that Jameson was talking about last week with the conversation about gluttony. We need food to live. So by definition, we are dependent creatures. We need something outside of ourselves to exist. So food, our desire for food, actually coaches us to recognize that there is something outside of ourselves that we need for life. Same thing with this conversation. And this parable ends actually with the antidote or the cure for greed. It says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. If you want to overcome greed's nasty grip on our lives, then we, then we need to intentionally become rich towards God. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, I, I think a really good, some really good handles for this are found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have a pen, get ready to write some things down because there's actually a pretty quick list in here that give us some good handles on this. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world... Let me stop there for a second. Command those who are rich in this present world. So who do we put on that list? Bill Gates, right? You just want to start listing rich people? Let's think about this for a second. Command those who are rich. You came to church with clothes on your body. You probably had multiple outfits to choose from. I know when I walked into my closet this morning, I chose from one of about 50 shirts. I don't know how many you have in your closet. But you probably had choices about ensemble that you put on today. You are probably not sitting here thinking about where your next meal is coming from. In fact, some of you are merely contemplating when I'm going to shut up so you can go to whatever restaurant you have already chosen. You will go home to your house with a roof, which is probably conditioned. So if you're chilly, you can turn on the heat. If you're a little bit hot, you can turn on the air conditioning. You will lay down on a soft bed. By all biblical standards in the contemplation of rich and poor, I would contend that there might be a few poor among us, but 99.9% of us that are collected at Christ Community Church this weekend are rich. Now let's read this verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Here's the quick list found in these verses. If you want to really, in a reflective and meaningful way, contemplate, does greed have any kind of grip in my life, and what can I do to loosen its grip? These are the things we do intentionally. Don't be arrogant. Don't trust in money. Enjoy life without being selfish and be generous. Start working on those things intentionally. As intentionally as the things I contemplate around my house that I would like to improve, which seem to occupy my mind all the time, 
I start trying to make that list more intentional to loosen the grip of greed in my life. And then the big payoff here is found in verse 19 of that same chapter in 1 Timothy. Because if you do those things, you will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Abundant life now, and more importantly, listen, the life to come, we need to recognize Not be short-sighted. Greed is short-sighted. It makes us unmerciful and it makes us short-sighted. It makes us think that it's only about the here and now. It's not only about the here and now. There is a life to come. It is destined for man to die once and then face judgment and reward awaits for a life well-lived. And true, complete satisfaction will only come when we get there in the life to come. Greed promises that the accumulation of more stuff is how to experience the unbelievable life. It's the elusive quest to live the life, and it sets us on a course of action to occupy our minds and effort only on ourselves in the unchecked accumulation of stuff and money to the exclusion of God and others. And it results in us missing the very thing we thought it would provide. More tragically... It fails to recognize the needs all around us and the reality that only when Jesus returns to set up his eternal kingdom will we be fully satisfied. The destructive character trait that it carves into us is unmerciful short-sightedness. So it's my prayer that we would cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives to break free from this vice because then and only then Do we live God-focused lives of mercy and attain what Jesus came to provide? Life and life abundantly. May we all break free to whatever extent greed has a grip on our lives. Some of us in big ways, some in small ways, but all of us would do well to ask the question because we live in a culture that cheers it on, coaches us towards it, and so we have to be intentional to move in the Godward direction.